Welcome to In Awe and Wonder, where we talk things of faith, Bible, theology, and worship. God sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. Psalm 111.9. I'm your host, Kristen Hamilton. Hello and welcome to the In Awe and Wonder podcast. This episode is the third of a four-part series called Reboot. I'm calling this episode Reboot Earthly Trials. I'll be talking about my two birth defects, miscarriages, pregnancy complications, kids in the NICU, a child with sensory processing disorder, and a husband with a brain tumor. I'd like to say up front that if hearing about miscarriage or pregnancy is not something you wish to listen to, I'll say when I'm going to start talking about them so you can skip ahead or stop the episode. I'm going to do my best not to get into many details of the miscarriages or pregnancy complications, but I want to discuss them in general because they have been part of my growth and maturity in many ways. Only one of my birth defects was discovered at birth, so I'll start there. I was born with Pierre Robin syndrome which is when the lower jaw is set further back than normal. I had a small sunken chin and a small mouth. PRS is a result in a change or mutation of a certain gene. It shows up in about one in 8,500 births. Sometimes it shows up alone, sometimes with a cleft palate, and sometimes as part of other larger syndromes. My case of PRS caused me to have a cleft palate. It was explained that in the development process in utero, the roof of the mouth begins to form from the gums and move inward to ultimately seal shut down the middle. In the case of PRS, with the lower jaw set far back, it wasn't allowing the tongue to drop down and rest out of the way while the palate was closing. So I was left with a hole in the palate. The palate is divided into two parts, the hard palate which is further forward, and a soft palate, which is further back. My cleft was in the soft palate and led up into the nasal passages. Because of this, I didn't have the ability to create suction for eating. The hospital I was born in was small and did not have a NICU, and it was also back in 1976. The doctors and nurses weren't that helpful or experienced with this stuff and gave no advice to my parents about how to feed me. I'm told that the doctors and nurses were just like, good luck. I'm sure my parents were like, gee, thanks a lot. So due to the ingenuity of my parents, they came up with a way to sort of force feed me. They used the Playtex bottles that are open on the sides and the bottom and have a baggie-like insert. My dad would take the nipples and somehow make the hole larger. And then they would carefully and gently with close monitoring squeeze the baggy insert of formula into my mouth. I don't know if they still make those Playtex bottles. I had some for my kids, but by then they had even changed the inserts to be less baggy-like, and they were a bit more hard to find. So I want to take a minute to clarify that I did not have a cleft lip, too. I've told people that I had a cleft palate before, and they say something like, oh, wow, looking at you, no one would have known. Sometimes cleft palates and cleft lips come together, but not in my case. My outward appearance is normal, aside from a lower jaw set back, 
which has corrected a lot due to both orthodontics and just natural maturing. As if PRS and a cleft palate with a smaller than usual mouth isn't enough, I also have a tongue that is enlarged on one side and has a hemangioma. A hemangioma is a cluster of extra blood vessels close to the surface of the skin. You may have seen people with red marks on their skin before or babies who are born with what is called stork bites. These are hemangiomas and sometimes they eventually go away on their own and sometimes they don't. Mine did not. So I just say my birthmark is on my tongue. But I've always been self-conscious of it, trying not to stick out my tongue as a kid and trying to make sure you can't see it when I'm talking and smiling. Sometimes when I'm talking, people will notice my red spot on my tongue and ask if my tongue is bleeding. And in addition, I have extra bone growth along my gums called mandibular tori which also limits the space in my mouth. So growing up, I've had three surgeries on my mouth. One was at 18 months old to try to close the palate. But due to still being a baby, crying and whatnot, a couple stitches were popped and I was left with a small hole remaining. The second was when I was around six years old. That time they were attaching my uvula, which is the flap of skin that hangs at the back of your throat, to the back of my throat. This was an effort, I believe, to help me make certain sounds better. I had speech issues as a kid since the palate was open to the nasal passages and my uvula couldn't reach the back of my throat. I couldn't make some sounds correctly. I had devised ways to make sounds that sounded similar but wasn't right. So I was in speech therapy for most of my elementary school years. I think it took until fourth or fifth grade before I learned how to form sounds correctly, and I graduated from speech therapy. I was self-conscious about the way I talked, so I was always a very quiet child. I knew I was different and didn't want to be made fun of. Thankfully, I wasn't made fun of, but I did have kids ask, are you from a different country? They thought perhaps I had some sort of foreign accent going on. And then the other question I got many, many times for many years was, why are you so quiet? Apparently I've learned quiet people seem to upset people or make them uncomfortable. Um, maybe it's just the silence that makes them uncomfortable. I'm not really sure, but that's a whole other discussion. Anyway, the third surgery on my mouth was when I was almost 12. That one was to finally completely close the hole. I think they waited that long so that it gave my mouth time to grow so there would be less stress on the tissues. That surgery was successful and I finally sounded normal when I talked and had the ability to use a straw, blow up a balloon, and whistle for the first time. As for orthodontics, I had two types of expanders to widen my mouth, a frankel to help bring my lower jaw further out, and braces to straighten my teeth. And then of course there were the retainers after that. Ironically, the quiet girl who needed speech therapy is launching a podcast. I remember one of my classmates made a comment out of the blue to me one day when we were seniors in physics class. She heard me say something to someone else and said, you know, you have a really good voice. It would be good on the radio. I was pleasantly surprised by that compliment. I had no plans to go on radio, TV, or do public speaking in my future. 
Only God knew that with the advance of technology, I would one day, 24 years later, be broadcasting from my home over the internet. Another thing I wanted to mention is ear problems. For some reason, ear problems seem to come with cleft palates. It probably has to do with the ear, nose, and throat connection. So my ear canals are smaller than a normal adult's. Growing up, I had many, many ear infections. I was always on antibiotics and ended up having, I think, four sets of tubes in my ears to help drain the eardrums. Because of this many sets of tubes, my eardrums are now permanently scarred. Along with that, I have constant ringing and sounds in my ears. I always have one high pitch solid noise, a lower pitch that varies on how much I hear it, and I hear the blood rushing through my eardrums with each heartbeat. It's a constant whoosh, whoosh, whoosh. I haven't really had hearing loss in the typical way, but rather I realize that tones in my ears will sometimes mask outside sounds of certain pitches or make it harder to hear if a noise is far away or if I'm trying to listen to someone in a crowded room. Whereas I understand when somebody suddenly gets tinnitus, which is ringing in the ears, it drives them nuts. I've lived with it for so long that I think I might go nuts if I were to experience complete silence. I expect that I'll have to wait for heaven to experience silence. So now is the transition where I'm fast forwarding to my late 20s to start talking about our miscarriages, which were physically caused by my second birth defect that we didn't know about until after two losses. I realize that if you're struggling with infertility, this can be a sensitive topic. You can skip ahead or stop listening now. I had been on birth control pills and heard a radio interview with Randy Alcorn one day about a book on contraceptives that he had written. He explained that the pill could cause a spontaneous miscarriage if it failed to block an egg from releasing. I won't get into the ways the pill works and how it could cause a fertilized egg to miscarry, but I was convicted very much listening to that program. I think I cried, I prayed, and I couldn't believe I hadn't heard about this before. I talked with my husband and we decided I could come off the pill. It wasn't like we were going to actively try to conceive, but if it happened, we would work things out. When we had first gotten married, we said we wanted to wait 10 years before starting our family, but we were only six years in at the time. We were both working full-time and knew we wanted me to stay home with the kids when the time came, and we weren't exactly ready for that yet. We ended up getting pregnant almost right away. I was shocked, but as the weeks went by, came to accept and get excited about having a baby. But at 12 weeks along, I started miscarrying. When I had an ultrasound, they said it was a blighted ovum, which means that a pregnancy had started developing, but for whatever reason, an embryo wasn't forming, at least not big enough to be detected, and it was basically just a sac. I knew that whether they could see it or not, a life had begun and then ended at some point. I was crushed. For one thing, it woke me up, so to speak, from being lackadaisical spiritually so that I was praying a lot more and diving into the Bible to search for answers. I read through the Psalms, which helped a lot, and at some point I started studying the character of God. I needed to understand better who he is and what role he had in something like this. I was not mad at God or blaming God. I found the comfort I needed, 
a growth in faith, and the ability to accept all things from God's hand by reading the Psalms and studying his attributes. The other thing the miscarriage did was to make me long for a baby. I had empty arms that were aching. Although I knew that one baby can't be a replacement for a lost baby, the desire to have a baby was now very large. I joined online support groups for women who have suffered miscarriages and ones for women trying to conceive. I started charting my cycles and just being immersed in that world. Two months later, we got pregnant again. I was very nervous and didn't announce it to many people. I started miscarrying this one at six weeks along. It was another blow. I had a wonderful doctor who also went to our church. She graciously offered to start tests to look into what was causing multiple miscarriages. Usually doctors wait until someone has had three losses before they do tests. I had some blood tests run, which show that I had elevated lipoprotein A, which has to do with clotting. So for future pregnancies, I had to take low-dose baby aspirin. Then I had a special type of ultrasound done, so the interior of the uterus was better able to be seen. They found a couple of polyps in there, but they also discovered my second birth defect. They discovered that I have a bicornuate uterus. Plus, mine had a septum, which between the two things almost entirely divided my uterus in half. In simplicity, a bicornuate uterus is heart-shaped. Mine has a pretty significant dip down the top. Generally, women with a bicornuate can go on to have mostly normal pregnancies. So the main issue that we think was causing miscarriage was the septum. A uterine septum is a wall of thin tissue that runs down the middle of the uterus. If an embryo implants on it, it won't have enough blood supply to sustain a pregnancy. So I was scheduled for surgery to remove the septum and polyps. While in surgery, my doctor found adhesions that were like a spider web all through my abdomen. She was able to remove almost all of it. The only conclusion we could draw from where they came from is that I have endometriosis. I later learned it's not unusual for higher incidences of endometriosis in women with Mullerian anomalies. Mullerian anomaly is the fancy technical term for having a congenital uterine abnormality. There are many types of anomalies. I joined an online support group for this too. I learned so much and was so active there trying to help other ladies that I was asked to become a co-moderator. I was so impatient to get on with trying to conceive again that we only waited the bare minimum time after surgery. I don't think things were completely healed up yet because I got pregnant right away, but it ended very quickly. It was really only about four and a half weeks along and would have been called a chemical pregnancy because it was so short. Most women who have this type of miscarriage don't even realize that they were ever pregnant. I did because I was keeping such a tight eye on my cycles, so I grieved, but I wasn't giving up. All of my miscarriages and surgery were within one calendar year, the year of 2003. I named each of my miscarried babies, made a special box to keep things in as a memorial, wrote them each a letter, and got a small teddy bear and put ribbons with each of their birthstone charms around its neck. I read many books about miscarriage, mostly by Christian authors. 
The one that helped me the most was by Pastor John MacArthur, called Safe in the Arms of God. Many of the other books were just a retelling of the author's own experience, giving some comforting Bible verses, recommending ways to help grieve this unique type of loss, and ideas on how to help loved ones who are suffering the same. MacArthur's book was really the only one that helped to answer the deeper spiritual questions I had. I was helping ladies in the support groups, but I had a new desire to write a book about the spiritual issues surrounding miscarriage. I knew there had to be other women who were wondering the same things. I explained some of this in the last episode, how once I thought I was ready to start actually writing the book years later, I thought there would be some secret tip or explanation that I could convey to women to help them grow closer to God and grow in their faith through the experience of miscarriage. As I was thinking about what made me hold on to God instead of getting mad at him and reject him, all I could come up with was that I simply trusted him. It was faith that kept me. But when I tried to think of how my faith or trust could be strong enough to hold on to him when it didn't make logical sense so that I could explain it, I had no answer. It seemed like a miracle. Now I know that even our faith is a gift from God. So there's nothing I could say or do to convince women to stay in the faith and stay with God during trials. I've abandoned the idea of writing a book specifically the way I had wanted to before. Instead, I can use the podcast and blog to discuss these truths pertaining to faith and sanctification in suffering. Moving on then, I got pregnant again the month after the third loss. I had a subchorionic hemorrhage at six weeks which terrified me, making me think I was having a fourth loss. But thankfully, all was okay. By the third trimester, our daughter was stuck in a Frank's breech position, basically laying in the shape of my uterus, with her head up on one side and her legs up on the other. Attempts to try to flip her would have been futile and could have put both our lives in jeopardy. So a C-section was scheduled in the 38th week. Two days before the scheduled C-section, she stopped moving. There weren't any kicks, punches, or wiggles. She did have a case of hiccups at one point, but after I tried to drink fruit juice and shake my belly to try to get some movement, there wasn't any, so I called the doctor. I was told to go to the hospital for a biophysical profile, which is a prolonged ultrasound. They did the same things, having me drink fruit juice and vibrating my belly, but no movement. All they saw was the heartbeat, so they decided to deliver her right then. I'm so thankful that I noticed she wasn't moving, called the doctor, and they decided to deliver then. Otherwise, it could have been a very different outcome. Our oldest daughter was born with the cord around her neck three times and an APGAR score of two. She had hypotonia, which means low muscle tone. She was a bluish color, wasn't crying or breathing at first, and was having seizures. She was born in a small hospital with no NICU, but was whisked away to be worked on and assessed. I was taken to recovery. After a little bit in recovery, the phone rang and the nurse, who also went to our church at the time, said they had called down to see if I was doing well enough to come back to my room. I didn't know what was going on, but I knew it couldn't be good if they were asking for me to get back upstairs as soon as possible. In my room, I learned that they were going to life flight our daughter to a hospital about 45 minutes away into their NICU. They had her in an incubator that was strapped to a stretcher. I got to see her in there and say hi, and then she was loaded onto the helicopter. 
I was in the hospital recovering for four days and then was released. I went up to the hospital where our daughter was and they let me stay in a nesting room. She was in the NICU for five more days and I can say those nine days total were the longest days of my life. I was worried about her and our outcome in future. I was told that she may have no lasting effects or she may have cerebral palsy or anything in between. She came home on phenobarbital, which is an anti-seizure medication, just as a precautionary. We started with early intervention services, having a physical and occupational therapist come into our home once a week to work with her, and we had several appointments with a pediatric neurologist to follow her progress. By nine months old, she was released from early intervention as she was on track developmentally, and she had an EEG, which showed no signs of seizure activity, so she was weaned off of the phenobarbital. As she became a toddler, she showed a very strong will and was hyperactive and had a very short attention span. Discipline wasn't working and I was frustrated. So when she was three years old, I talked to her doctor about it and she referred us to another physical therapist for evaluation of possible ADHD. They were not able to diagnose ADHD, but they said she had sensory processing disorder. There are different types of SPD, and her type is mainly a sensory seeker. So for her, she seeks to have her senses stimulated. That's why she was hyperactive and liked different textures so much. The only area where she is opposite of wanting textures and flavors is eating. She is the pickiest eater. Even at the age of 14, she has not broken away from her usual foods. The funny thing there is that she's going to attend our county vocational technical school next year for culinary. She wants to someday open a cupcake shop, but in culinary studies, she will likely be forced to try foods she doesn't normally eat. It could be a good or a bad thing. Anyway, she had therapy for SPD for about a year, and then we moved and were told we didn't need to worry about finding a new therapist to continue with. She was a very difficult toddler, but got less hyperactive as she got older. She started school and we found that she has a slight learning disability, now knowing that it is a form of dyslexia. It's not that she sees things backwards, but there are different forms of it. She was in Title I for reading and math for a while. Then she got an IEP that called for special help and goals for her to meet. She made great strides in math and is good at understanding math concepts. However, she's still behind in reading and getting help for that. She's now taller than me, which is weird to adjust to as a parent. And she's a sweet girl who still asks for hugs, loves arts and crafts, loves making slime, and loves animals. So for our middle daughter, I got pregnant with her when our oldest was nine months old. I didn't have any complications with her pregnancy. And the only issue was that she was laying sideways completely sideways in utero. There was no hope for a VBAC, so another C-section was scheduled. She was delivered on the day she was scheduled, stayed in my hospital room with me, and went home with me. She's the only baby that got to do that. She's now 12, turning 13 next month. She's our social butterfly and involved in cheer, archery, chorus, and band. I got pregnant with our youngest daughter when our middle daughter was two. The pregnancy with her was totally normal right until I started the third trimester. I began having what I call episodes of hemorrhaging very badly. I was in and out of the hospital a few times. They couldn't tell exactly what was happening. 
Finally, after an overnight stay in the local small-town hospital, they decided to transport me to the Ohio State University Medical Center in Columbus, where I would be on complete bed rest there for the next three weeks. We were trying to make it to at least 36 weeks, but after several hemorrhaging episodes and speculation that it could be caused by placenta previa, or a placental abruption. When I began hemorrhaging again one evening, they decided not to wait longer, but to go ahead and deliver her that night. This was in the 35th week. So we were almost there, but our daughter was still classified as a preemie. She was also laying sideways, so it was another C-section. While I had been on bed rest, I decided that during the C-section, I would have my tubes tied and be done having biological children. I would be at very high risk putting the life of another baby or my own in jeopardy if I ever got pregnant again. Not only that, but I couldn't put us through another time of being confined to bed rest, whether at home or in a hospital, because my husband had to continue working. Our older two girls had to spend a month, four hours away with grandparents, both my parents and my husband's parents who live in the same town while I was in the hospital. Our youngest daughter was in the NICU, not for anything major, but temperature and feeding regulation for about two weeks. After I was released from the hospital, my husband would drive us over to visit our daughter every evening after work. She was finally released, but when I took her for her one-month checkup, the doctor thought she looked anemic and discovered blood in her stool. So they admitted her back into the hospital. She had a blood transfusion, and they put her on really expensive formula alimentum. Between those two things, that seemed to do the trick and she was fine. Both she and I have struggled with digestive issues, so we were gluten-free for a couple of years and we both discovered we had some food sensitivities, but she had, has mostly grown out of them. She is now nine, turning 10 next month. She's my mini-me. She loves arts and crafts, animals, dancing, cooking and baking, growing plants, and being out in nature. So I've had to have a couple miscellaneous surgeries since then. My hemangioma on my tongue started bleeding because I had a habit of eating a bowl of popcorn every evening. Um, this was back around the time I was, well, our youngest was just a baby. The kernels must have been too much and I had to have my tongue cauterized. I had to have another gynecological surgery. Um, this was also when she was a baby. And I had a kidney stone. That was not fun. Finally, we have dealt with my husband having a brain tumor. The type of tumor is called a dermoid cyst. It's not cancerous, and these type of tumors can show up anywhere in a body. They're the weird kind where they can contain extra body parts growing inside, like teeth, eyeballs, or other parts. My husband's contained a big hairball. So it is thought that perhaps a hair follicle had begun to develop inside his skull and growing a hair year after year, and the body encapsulated it with the tumor, which was filled with a mayonnaise-like gunk to protect the brain. It was discovered just months before his 30th birthday and was about the size of a baseball. By the time of surgery, it had ruptured, so there was gunk floating around in his head. He had to have a craniotomy and the doctor tried to clean everything up and remove the massive hairball. We were so fortunate that he didn't have a stroke, seizure, or any other complication before or during surgery. 
However, due to the nature of the surgery, where the doctor had tried to clean out all the gunk, he had to get a little aggressive with the optical nerve, and then he said he had to cut another nerve that he thought was an extra one that was growing in the tumor. So due to a combination of these factors, even after about 11 years, my husband's left eye is always dilated, the eyelid is droopy, and the eyeball only has partial movement. Therefore, he wears prescription sunglasses outside the house at all times. He's encountered people who ask if he's just trying to look cool. And there are some people who find it disturbing not to be able to see his eyes when he's talking to them. And they'll ask him to remove the shades. Then he has to explain that he had a brain tumor and his eye was damaged during surgery. So even though it's a pain and he struggles with chronic headaches, we are extremely thankful that this is the only lasting effect. As a wife, to hear your husband has a brain tumor, before we knew it was benign or anything about it, your mind starts racing about what ifs. We had two of our daughters then who were just around 18 months old and three years old. For me, it was another lesson in not being in control and completely relying on God and then to give thanks as he got us through. In closing, I want to share about a friend I have from the Mullerian Anomalies Support Group. She obviously had a uterine anomaly, and that also caused her to suffer multiple losses. Her brother was born with a cleft palate. She told me that they've had discussions about which birth defect is worse. It may be an interesting thought, but I think the discussion would be futile. I don't know if she wanted me to settle the discussion as a person who has dealt with both, but I don't think we can compare birth defects or suffering. For a Christian, God will use each person and each defect in different ways, for our sanctification and growth, and for his glory. Whereas my cleft palate caused me to feel different as a child, which could have had some sort of emotional toll, causing me to be more withdrawn and introverted, and in my ears, causing me to live with constant ringing. But it also caused me to have an older wisdom and confidence in God that really matters. My mom said that once before going into surgery, I'm not sure what was being said, but probably my family was feeling bad that I needed to go in again. I said, sometimes you just got to do something even if you don't want to do it. And whereas my Mullerian anomaly was quicker and easier to fix, we had to suffer multiple losses due to it. There's no way to compare the two. I've also learned that even among people suffering the same type of thing, we can't compare our sufferings. We don't know exactly what another person is feeling and how they're handling it. We're all different and things affect us in different ways. As I said, for the Christian, God uses birth defects and sufferings in different ways for that person's growth. People who aren't Christians, all I can say is that birth defects are a result of living in a fallen, imperfect world. The hardest thing for me to reconcile in all of my issues was realizing and accepting that God not only knew that I would have these birth defects, but that he formed me like this. Psalm 139 says, For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. 
My birth defects have taught me so much about the sovereignty of God. He formed me in a way that would seem negative to other people. And in some countries, the cleft palate would have caused parents and even society to reject me. Yet he did it and did it for my good and his glory. Will we not accept everything from God, whether good or bad? And above all, he was immeasurably merciful to me by having me born in the time and place that he did. I could go on, but I won't for now. I have thought about writing a book about birth defects instead of miscarriage. However, there are already so many books, so we'll see. At the very least, I do plan to dive deeper from time to time on the issues of suffering on this podcast and or the blog. The next episode will be the last in this four-part reboot series. I will be talking about what's ahead for this podcast and the blog. I'll talk about what you can expect here and the goals I have for it. Thanks for listening. Join me for the next episode. Please like, subscribe, and share. You can visit my blog at www.kristen-hamilton.com. You can follow the Facebook page called In Awe and Wonder blog. And you can follow me on Twitter at Kristen Hammy. That's K-R-I-S-T-E-N-H-A-M-I. Have a great day and keep reading your Bible.